Okay, well, uh, turning your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. That's where we're going to be. If you can figure, when we talk about the patriarchs, we can figure out who they are and see all that. Tonight we begin this study called the patriarchs. We're seeing the lives. Really, it's going to be a four great men in the Word of God. That's what we're going to see. Now, they've got entangled with all kind of lives, all kind of people, all kind of different things. Now, when you hear the word patriarch, the word patriarch really means the head of a family or head of a tribe, the patriarch. Some people might say, my grandfather was the patriarch of our family. It means he kind of, he was the, the big man in the family. When we think about the Bible, we think the patriarchs, they're really the head of the Jewish people. As you know, God chose a unique group of people through Abraham to be what we call his chosen people. And not chosen for, uh, for salvation, but chosen for service. And so that's the Jewish people. Usually when we think of patriarchs in the Bible, we think of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Uh, and now we're going to add to that Joseph. So our study will include Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. So it'll be sort of fun. We're going to look at the, the biblical patriarchs. We're going to look at their lives. We're going to look at, you've heard of them all your lives. We say, oh, we know Abraham. We know Isaac. Uh, you know, it's funny that everybody knows Abraham. A lot, people say, I don't, I don't know much about Isaac. And then we say, well, I know a lot about Jacob. And I know some things about Joseph, coat of many colors. You know, just a few stories that you've heard all about them. We're going to see their lives and we're going to see uh, uh, their trials their events, their victories, their failures, the promises that God made to them. And we've got so much to look at. Let me give it to you this way. Let's just look up here for a minute. In chapters 12 through 23, as we go through the book of Genesis, now, of course, we're not going to go through verse by verse through all that. You can't do that. It's going to be pretty good. We're going to look at Abraham. And, and uh, when you think about Abraham, the life of Abraham, he's the man of faith. He believed God and it was counted to him for what? Abraham, righteousness. Oh, and, and, and in fact, when you think about the Bible, especially the book of Romans, we're justified by faith. We're declared righteous by faith. Abraham is sort of the picture of that. He is a follower of God and a man of God, a great, a great person. And yet, we're going to see that he messes up just like everybody else. And then we're going to look at Isaac. And Isaac is only going to be chapters 24, 25, and 26. And when you look at that, you say, gosh, he kind of got left out. and not a whole lot about him. Uh, he's, he's amazing because Isaac was the son to which the seed will come. We'll talk more about that. I call him the quiet man. There's just not a lot about him, but he's amazing. I call him the miracle child. It was a miracle birth. He was born to a man who was 100 years old and a woman 90 years old. That's how special he is. It's a picture of new birth. He's faithfulness and trust. And then you got Jacob. And when we say Jacob, uh, his name means heel, <laughs> and he means deceiver. And he also had a different name. Uh, his name was changed to Israel. We see a man with great victory and a man with defeat. That's what we're seeing all the way through it. And then uh, he's the man who wrestled with God. And God changed his name. And then the last thing we'll see is in chapters 37 through 50, Joseph. And when we see Joseph, we think of Joseph, coat of many colors. He pictured, he, he suffered so much. Uh, he was used by God, uh, a, a man who, I, I just call him faithful. And so what we'll do is, if you notice, in lessons one through five, we're going to be looking at the life of Abraham. So that's those first five lessons. That's what we're going to highlight. Then if you look at it, lesson six is Isaac. And you got, gosh, Isaac only got one lesson. Well, he's pretty special. And when you go through that, you'll see it. 
And then lesson 7 through 10 is Jacob's life, and uh, he is amazing. And then finally 11 through 14 is Joseph. Now, they all kind of tie together because, as you know, Abraham's son was Isaac, and Isaac's son is Jacob, and one of J Jacob's sons is Joseph. So they all tie together. That's why they're called the patriarchs. So in the, in the weeks to come, we're going to take a look at each one of their lives. And there's so many great things about them. In fact, if you just named Abraham, probably all of us in this room could come up with some things about him. And if we said Isaac... You could. If we said Jacob, you could. If we said Joseph, you could. And what we are, we're going to look at some great things there. So let's start with this and say, we all make promises. You got to be very careful when you say something like, "Oh, don't worry, I'll be there. I'll be there to help you." We make promises, but got to be very careful when we make a promise because we can't always keep our promises. Realize sometimes, like if I said, "Hey, I'll be at your house in the morning, eight o'clock. I'll help you do that." So I get up. It's five to eight. I go out to the car and won't crank. And I say, oh, what am I going to do? I can't even get, I can't get there. Or I can't find my keys. Or something else happened. Or you got sick during the middle of the night and they took you to the hospital. So sometimes we make a promise, but we can't always keep the promise. And something might happen to us. Sometimes it's just not convenient. I, I mean this in a, in, in a really a bad way. But you may say, I'll be there at 8 o'clock to help you. You wake up at 7.30. You say, I don't, I'm, not, I'm too tired. I'm not going to go. So sometimes we make promises and we don't keep them. Sometimes we can't keep them. But one thing about it, when God makes a promise, God makes a promise. He keeps every promise that he makes. And so we're going to see some promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to Joseph. And so we're going to see how all that ties together. Now, when God makes a promise, he always, he always keeps it. And why? Here's two things. One, number one, God can't lie. So when he says, I will do this, whatever he says is always true. He cannot lie. I like if you got in your little book there, Titus chapter 1, verse 2, says, God who cannot lie promised eternal life. When you believe in Jesus Christ, what do you get? Eternal life. How do you know? Because God what? Promised it. He said, I will give you eternal life the moment you believe in me. That's a promise. And he can't lie. The second thing is he's all-powerful. That means he's able to do whatever he has promised. If he says it, he's going to do it. That's why I love Romans 4.21. It basically says that Abraham was fully assured that what God had promised, he was able to perform. And so that's the, the first aspect. We're going to see that all the way through the book is that the promises of God to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. So as we study the patriarchs, we find that's the key. The promises dealing with the nation. And by the way, all of this ties into Jesus Christ. All this ties into us. And a lot of times I've talked to people and they'll say, uh, you don't need to study the Old Testament or you don't need to know the Old Testament. The Old Testament is too hard. In fact, there's kind of a famous pastor in America today that says you don't even need the Old Testament. You shouldn't even be looking at it. Well, let me tell you, if you don't have the Old Testament, you, the New Testament doesn't even fit together. If you don't have the Old Testament, you can't even understand the New Testament. And so we're going to begin looking tonight at Abraham and, and, and how he fits together and all of this. And we'll get some, let's get some background. And so if you're on the top of the, the next page, it says right here, the Old Testament is divided into four sections. So it's a great idea as we get ready to start, let's sort of get some background. And the Bible, the Old Testament is divided into four parts. They call it the Torah, which is also called the law. 
history, writings, and the prophecy. Now, that's our Old Testament. The Jewish Bible was not divided into four parts. It's exactly the same books, but divided into three parts. It was called the Law, the, the, uh, the Writings, and the Prophets. It was called the, the Torah, the Nebim, and the Ketubim. That's how, they, that's how they put it together. Here's what we say. If we look at the, the, the Torah, the Torah is the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. All of our study is going to be in the book of Genesis. History books start with Joshua and Judges and Ruth and 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, all of that. That all ties together history. Writings, of course, the book of Job and Proverbs and Psalms, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. And then you get to the prophecy section and you got Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. That's, that's one section. And then Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, and all of that. That's the second section. So that's how the Bible fits together. Now, our study is just the first book of the Bible, and that's the book of Genesis. So, for a while, your Bible is going to be used to opening at the very beginning. You know, your Bible has been used to being opening where? At the very ending, because we've been doing the book of Revelation for a good while, and so we always say, oh, and so we're always in the back. Well, in this study, we're going to balance it out. Everything's going to be in the front. And so we're going to see it. So the first five books called the Torah. Genesis literally means beginning. Let's break it down. Genesis can be divided into two big sections. Genesis 1 through 11 is four great events. Okay? Genesis 1 through 11, four great events. And then verses 12 through 50, which is the rest of the book, of course, four great people. And that's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. We'll talk more about them in just a second. So when you think about the Bible and the book of Genesis, basically chapters 1 through 11 is, this, is these events that happened. And it's the beginning of, of creation and all that kind of stuff. And then in chapter 12, all of a sudden God gets this man named Abraham. And really the whole rest of the Bible ties into this man and the promises that God made. Now, that God made promises to Adam and Eve back over here, and that ties into Abraham. And so the whole rest of the Bible, this is all these events, and these are four great people. So we're going to see how that fits together. Let's think about uh, the, the, you know, the, the, the four great events, and that is this. The creation, the fall, the flood... And the division. That's the four uh, great events. And if you look, if, if you look at this, and by the way, uh, this this part right here, the first eleven chapters, we don't know how long that covers. Some people say it covers ten thousand years. Some people, of course, who don't hold to the Bible the way you do, say it covers millions of years. And I don't think it does at all. But then from Abraham on, Abraham lived about two thousand years before Jesus. So just think about that. So from Genesis one. Chapter 1 to chapter 11 is a number of years, and most likely between six and 10,000 years. Not millions of years. When you read the Bible and you read it carefully, you realize that it's given exact history, and this is how it ties together. So we're starting right here at about 2,000 years before Christ. But so there was the creation, and you remember God spoke it all into being, and uh, uh, basically a, a really a great world. Uh, it, he put mankind there. He told them what to do. And then what happened was the fall. In Genesis chapter 3, the failure. And when, when mankind sinned, God, uh, the, the whole world was cursed. And God made a plan. And God said, I am going to save mankind. I'm going to send a seed of woman who will crush the head of the serpent. That's the Messiah. 
and all the way even to right here and from on, this issue of a Messiah, this issue of a Savior, is all the way through the Bible. You've heard me talk about this. You've, I've heard me, you've heard me say, the story of the Bible is how the what? The perfect God brings sinful man back to himself using his son, Jesus Christ. You should know that. You should know that. Uh, write that down. No, anyway, that's really the story of the Bible, right? If you look at the Bible, I've heard people say, the story of the Bible is the love of God. No. The story of the Bible is the sovereignty of God. No. The story of the Bible is how God saves mankind. That's the story of the Bible. That's his plan. His plan from the very beginning when Adam and Eve failed was the seed of woman will crush the head of the serpent. And that's what he plans. And so four great events. Then the flood, of course, you remember that um, after the the fall and then God looked at the world and he said, my gracious, uh, the, the thoughts of man are evil. And so he decided to destroy it. And uh, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. They put Noah, they told him to build an ark. By the way, how long did it take him to build the ark? 120 years, right. And then they got on the ark. And how long were they on the ark? Everybody wants to say 40 days and 40 nights. It rained 40 days and 40 nights. They were on the ark 370 days. Read the book of Genesis. You'll see it three, uh, 370 days. And then they came off. And then everything looked good. And Noah came off. And he, he did a sacrifice. And then uh, God said, I want you to be fruitful and multiply and fill the whole earth. And some people said, we're not moving. In fact, as these people developed, they said, we're going to build an altar straight up to heaven. And we'll do everything we want to do. And God said, no, I'm going to divide you. And he divided them by the language. So those in the first 11 chapters... Uh, the four great events, and that's that's the, the the thing there. Now, the four great people, of course, are going to be Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And I think at the top of your next page, we got the four great people, Abraham. And if you want to write anything down beside these names, because we're going to get a lot of detail. But when you think about Abraham, Abraham was the father of the Jewish people, the beginning. He's the patriarch. And so Jewish people came from Abraham. Um I want you to think about this. People say Jewish people, Israelites. Where do they get these names? Well, first of all, we're going to see that Abraham lived in the earth at Chaldees, and when he crossed over, God told him to go to a land. When he crossed over, he became known as a Hebrew. The word Hebrew means one who crosses over. So they were known as the Hebrews because they crossed over the Tigris-Euphrates River. Later on, God changed Jacob's name from Jacob to Israel, and so then the descendants were known as Israelites. And then later, after the division of the kingdom, there was a northern tribe and a southern tribe, a southern kingdom, and the southern kingdom had was Judah and Benjamin. And after that, people began calling them Jews, which is short for Judah. So that's who they are. And Abraham is the man. He started it all, uh, and then we'll see him. Isaac, I call him the quiet man. He's a picture of redemption. Listen, when we get to his story, and you're going to say, there's not many chapters about him, and there's not a whole lot there. But the greatest event of his life is when he allowed his father to offer him as a sacrifice. We all say, Abraham believed God so much that he took his son up on an altar and was ready to sacrifice him. Well, guess what? Abraham was at least 114 years old. And Isaac was probably 14 years old. I think he could have outrun Abraham. I think if he said, I'm not getting up on this thing and get killed, 
He could have run away, but he didn't. So he's an amazing man. Then we think about Jacob, and when we think of Jacob, he is renamed Israel. We see victories and failures. He is he is one of those guys that you look at him and say, I don't know how you made it as long as you made it, but he is incredible. And then, of course, Joseph, he delivers Israel. I think the key word, when I think of Joseph, I think of two words, forgiveness and faithfulness. Forgiveness and faithfulness. If you just want to write some of those down, just just some ideas, just to get some background and what's going on and how does it fit. So, are we ready to get into these guys? We got a little background. So, let's think about Abraham. Abram is right there. That's his name at the beginning, Abram. And we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at some background on Abram. We're going to see the promise and the covenant. And by the way, this is this is going to these truths we're going to see tonight. They put together the entire Bible. You may not realize that, but what we're going to see just tonight puts together the entire Bible. We're going to see the background, the promise, and the covenant that God made with Abraham. And then we're going to see Abraham's failure. You know, you'd think, why wouldn't we see Abraham's victories? Well, we do see some, but we're going to see his failure. And so we'll see how it starts. So let's start with the background. And if you put in background is Genesis 11. And go ahead and turn to Genesis. You're in chapter 12, my Bible. I'll have to turn back a little bit to get to Genesis chapter 11. And we're going to look at some background, okay? And we're going to see Abraham's father was named Terah. Okay, so let's look at Genesis chapter 11. Look at verse 27. Okay, here we go. It says, now these, I hope everybody has a Bible. I hope you do. When we come to a class like this, you know, we uh, still order Bible. It's called still order Bible Institute. So you probably ought to have a Bible. And so, so you can look at stuff in any way. So look at verse, uh, tw- uh, chapter 11, verse 27. Now these are the records of the generations of Terah. Okay, who is this guy? Well, Terah, look. Terah fathered Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. So this man, Terah, is the father of Abraham. Right here is called Abram. It's the same person, Abram, Abraham. God changed his name later on. Uh, Abram means big daddy. It means high father. It means like you're the big daddy. And, and God changed his name to Abraham, which means father of nations. And so, but right now he's just called Abram. And so uh, Terah fathered Abram. Uh, Nahor and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Okay, now wait a minute. So we we got we got the dad, and then we got Abraham and the two other brothers, and and then all of a sudden they take this one and they said, now by the way he had he had a son named Lot. Why didn't he name any of these others? Because Abraham had kids later on, and somebody else had kids later on. Well, here's why: because what's going to happen? He's going to die, and Abraham is going to adopt him and take him into his family. That's why the Bible always does this. When you read Genesis, Genesis chapter 1 gives, a hist- gives the creation its overview. Chapter 2 of Genesis gives you the details. You'll look at it all throughout the Bible. There'll be places, and it'll say this, and it'll list people, and then it'll list somebody else, and then all of a sudden they give you details, and these people are there. So what God does is he gives you a big overview, and then he gives you the details. He starts off with a big overview. Now, this man had Abraham and his two uh, other sons, and by the way, this son had Lot. And so we're going to see what happens, why, why, you know, what, what's going on. And we're going to see, uh, this is, Tiro was Abraham's father, by the way, if you're writing that stuff in. Now let me, let me show you this. It goes on a little further. It says, uh, Haran died during the lifetime of his father Tiro. So one of his sons died, Haran died, in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldeans. 
Well, where is Ur? Let's just look at this. There's a map, and I want you to see something. And if you're noticing, this, uh, this is modern-day Israel right in here, okay? And this is modern-day Iraq. And at the lower part of Iraq was Babylon, and then there was a city called Ur way down there. This is called the Fertile Crescent. This is, whoops, I pressed the wrong button. Uh, this is called the Fertile Crescent right here. And this is where life began. By the way, if you read the book of Genesis, where was the garden? The garden was at a place where the Tigris, Euphrates, and two other rivers all came together. Probably this part right here of the world was where the original Garden of Eden was. And God moved them out. And you say, well, what changed? What changed was the flood. It changed everything. And so they were living in Ur. And by the way, down in Ur, they, were, they worshipped the moon. They worship different gods down there. And if you notice out by here, there's this big plain. This is where most believe that the Tower of Babel was because there's Babylon right there. And, this. and so they're down at Ur, and, and they decide to leave, and they go all the way up to a city up here, and they call it Iran, which is named after the son who died. So Abraham, notice it goes on to say, um, uh, Abraham and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abraham's wife was Sarah, and the name of Mahor's wife was Milcah, and the daughter of Aaron, they name it all. And then they say something, and we'll get to it in just a little bit. Uh, it, it says that Abraham's wife uh, was unable to conceive, and she didn't have a child. And so what we find now is you've got Abraham and his wife named Sarai. Now, I've done, I've done all kind of readings, and I used to just teach blankly, you know, say that, saying that the name Sarai means nagger, and the name Sarah means princess. But the more I've looked through everything I can find, uh, probably both names mean princess, that she probably wasn't a nagger. Although, we, you know, we don't go this way. Are we going this way? Are we sure we're going this way? But anyway, uh, so her name's why Abraham's wife name is Sarah, and the problem is she's barren. Now, that doesn't present a problem right now. We say, so what's the big deal? Well, when God comes to Abraham and says, through you and Sarah, we're going to have all the nations of the world and the Messiah is going to come. If she can't have babies, what are we going to do? Well, we'll have to figure that one out. And so Abraham's wife, Sarah. And so let's look a little further down. Uh, so Terah took Abram and, his, and, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, his daughter-in-law, Sarah, Abraham's wife. And they left the Ur and they went to Haran and they stayed there. And Terah was 205 years old and he died. So now you go to chapter 12. So now you've got Abraham. And let's just say Abram, you can say it either way. I don't care how you say it. You got Abe and Sarah and Lot. That's the big three, okay? And they're together. And watch what God does. The promise. Now, this is going to shape everything. It's going to shape everything uh, in, in, the, in the rest. So, number two is the covenant. And this, is, as we remember, a covenant, by the way, is an agreement between two parties, and as we begin chapter 12, it's one of the major divisions of the Bible. In fact, if I was putting together the Bible, I would say chapter 12 is one of the key chapters in the whole Scripture. God comes to Abraham and makes a covenant with him. And remember, God's covenant to Abraham is how God is going to deal with one man and one people, which we call the Jews, but it's going to affect all the rest of the world. 
God's covenant. And, and we're going to see what he does. He's going to set apart a man. He's going to set apart a nation. When we think about covenants, there are two kinds of covenants. There are covenants that are unconditional. means no conditions. And it's supposed to say, I'm sorry, it's supposed to say God will do. Okay, not go will do, but God will do. So under an unconditional covenant God makes, it means he's going to do it all and nobody has to do anything. On a conditional covenant, both parties have a responsibility. I want you to understand something. The covenant we're about to look at is called the, the Abrahamic covenant. And Abraham doesn't have any part in it. God does it all. But when you get to the Mosaic law, that's a covenant. And that's a conditional covenant. God says what he will do if they do what they're supposed to do. So God makes conditional covenants and unconditional covenants. But for the most important thing we're seeing here is this unconditional covenant that God makes the promise and God does it all. Abraham has to do nothing. I want you to look at chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram. Now this is God comes to him. Have you ever thought, have you read the Bible and have you ever thought about this? What does it mean the Lord came to Abram? Was Abram eating chicken and all of a sudden God appeared? We're going to find out in the scripture that happens sometimes. That Abraham looks up and he sees God. I mean, he sees him. He's in the form of a person. We call that the pre-incarnate Christ. So how did God speak to these people? How did he do that? You know, we, we don't really know exactly, but we know this. It says, and the Lord said to Abram, here's what I want you to do, Abram. Go from your country from your relatives, from your father's house, to a land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I'll make your name great. You shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I'll curse those that curse you, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Let me ask you a question. What does Abraham have to do? Nothing. Nothing. Who's going to do it all? God's going to do it all. Look at this. I will show you. I will make you. I will bless you. I will make you. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those that curse you. We call this the Abrahamic covenant. Now, I'm going to erase this for a second. Okay? So this is the covenant with Abraham. This is the big one. We're going to find that this covenant has three parts. There's, we're going to see it in a minute. I'm just writing it up ahead of time. Land, a seed, and a blessing. Now let me give you a kind of a heads up. God's going to come back and make three more covenants with Israel. And one of them's going to deal with the land. We call that the land covenant or the Palestinian covenant. He's going to come back and make a covenant dealing with the seed. That's in Second Samuel 7. 12. That's with David. That's the, and then he's going to come back and make another covenant. It's going to be found in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. So this covenant has three parts. God comes back with these three parts and says, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this. I just want you to see it. You don't have to, you don't have to write it all down. You can write it all down. I want you to see how this fits together. And so when God comes to Abraham here, this is one of the most important places in the whole Bible. Okay, so let's look at it. Uh, by the way, he makes the covenant with him here. They don't cut the covenant till later. Let me understand something. It's like God said, I got a contract for you. Here's what I'm going to do. It's not going to be till later they sign the contract. And what he does here is says, Abraham, do this, this, I'm doing this, this, and this. In chapter 15, and we will see this, God tells Abraham to go sit down and to get animals, and he cuts them apart. 
And he says to Abraham, you go sit down, and a flaming fire of God walks between those animals. That's called cutting the covenant. It was like signing a document. Who signed it? God. Did Abraham sign it? No, because it's an unconditional covenant, and God does it all. Okay, so let's see, let's see what's going to happen. And as we look at this, I'll, there's three aspects. When I say three aspects in the covenants, in the covenant, it's not this part right here. I'm going to show you. First of all, we're going to see a man. The three aspects. First of all, is about Abraham. This is the man. A, he's a man of faith. Listen, let me just tell you this. Uh, he's called a great person. Do you realize that the three greatest religions in the world, and I'm, I hate to say it, I'm not, I'm not really saying I don't think Christianity is a religion, but let me just say this. The three great things flow from Abraham are Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. You understand that? All from Abraham. If you went to somebody who is Islamic and you said Abraham, they would say, oh, Abraham's great. And if you go to Christians, what do we say? Is Abraham great? Yes. And if you go to Jewish people, is Abraham great? Did God make him a great name? Does he become a great nation? Is he, does all the nations of the world bless through him? And really, they are. So first of all, he's a great man of faith. The second, this is a pattern of justification in the scripture. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. It's always how? Always by what? It's always by faith. Please don't ever forget that. Don't get confused and think that works have anything to do with salvation. Anytime God deals with us, especially for eternal life or even his promises, it's always faith. The pattern is justification. Abraham was justified by faith. If you read the book of Galatians, Paul uses Abraham as the example. If you look, read the book of Romans, Paul uses Abraham as the example. And then the third thing is the promise, this promise will affect the whole rest of the Bible. It will. It will. So those big three things, those are dealing with Abraham, okay? The second thing is we're going to see the nation and the, and the Jewish. Can you all hear back there? Is it too loud? What do those kids think they're doing back there? Having fun and, and studying and learning the Bible? What could be happening here? Okay, the second thing about this whole aspect is there's going to be a nation of people. The Jews, the offspring of Abraham. And what is so amazing, the offspring of Abraham are the Jews and the Israelites. And, and who, you know, they are. And this is, this is them. And what's happening to them right now? What happened to them on January, what was it, January 6th? What happened to them? Evil people came in and killed them. They're fighting for their lives right now. And does the world love them? The world hates them. You know why? Because they're God's people. They're God's people. I didn't say they're believers. Every individual Jew, if he's going to have eternal life, has to believe in Jesus the Messiah for eternal life. But as a people group, they're always going to be God's people group. And let me tell you what. He will bless those who do what? And he will curse those that what? Curse them. You do not want to be on the cursing side. Uh, we've seen it all throughout history. Hitler was on the cursing side. What happened to him? Nebuchadnezzar was on the cursing side. Uh, Haman was on the cursing side. Um, Antiochus Epiphanes IV was on the cursing side. And what happened to them? They're gone. Pharaoh was on the cursing side. And what happened to him? So let me just tell you, this is God's people. It, this is the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. Because God chose them, that did not save them. He chose them for service. And every individual Jew must believe that they're going to have life, eternal life. 
The third thing is we want to see that through this thing, it's universal for all people. If you notice, he says, and uh, I, I will bless you and, uh, and all of the families of the earth will be blessed. Who is that? That's everybody. What's the blessing? The blessing coming through, through Abraham is going to be the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Are we blessed by Jesus Christ? We have eternal life through Jesus Christ. It is. So when you think about this, we see three areas. The man, Abraham, the nation, Israel, and all mankind. Now let's talk about the covenant. And I put it up here already, and I want you to see it, and I want you to get an idea of how this fits together. And uh, so this, this is, uh, there's three parts to this unconditional covenant. The first one is a land. Let me read back here again. He says, the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and to a land I will show you. Later on, he says, in verses 4, 5, and 6, he says, this, he took Sarah and they went there. And Abraham went to the land and God basically said to him, to your descendants, I will give this land. That's verse 7, okay, of Genesis 12, verse 7. The land is given to, um, to Abraham. Now, let me just tell you an amazing thing. Abraham lived his whole life, and he didn't own any of the land. He owned one little section that he spent a lot of money for to bury his family by the Oaks of Mamre, a little section that he bought and spent a lot of money to be able to bury his wife and his family. That's the only thing he ever owned in the whole land. And whose land was it? It's his, every bit of it. God even told him, you look to the north, south, east, to west, as far as you can see, this is your land. He never possessed it. Isaac never possessed it. Jacob really never possessed it. Judah never possessed it. You get to King David, he never possessed the total promise. In fact, the Jewish people have never possessed totally the land that promised them. You know when they will? We just saw it on Sunday morning. When the kingdom comes and Jesus comes to Jerusalem and sets up the throne, the Israelites will possess all of the land that God promised them. And so, so this is the land, and he says, I'll give it to you. And by the way, it's a lot bigger than, than, uh, than that little bitty strip that you always see everybody talking about. So that's the land that he's promised. To. And by the way, he comes back in Genesis chapter 15 and makes a covenant to call the land covenant. So this is a covenant, has three parts, and then he's going to come back and make a covenant right here. And then we're going to see more. Let me show you so you'll see how it all fits together. The second thing was the seed. The seed was come, going to come through him to make a great nation. And how could, by the way, how could this be a man uh, who's going to have a great nation? He doesn't have any children. What's his name? And what's it mean? Big Daddy. He has no children. God changed his name to Father of Many Nations. He has no children. You know how old he is? Seventy. Five years old when this is made, and he has no children. His wife is 10 years younger. Sarah is 65, and we're going to see about her in just a little bit. So this is the seed, and, and you know what he thinks? He says, he may say to himself, you know what? I got a nephew. What's his name? Lot. It, maybe it's Lot. Oh, also, I also have a, a, a slave that's like a son to me, and, and his name is Eleazar, and maybe, maybe, maybe he'll be the one that it comes through. Because, see, I'm what? I'm old, and Sarah is old, and there's no way we're going to be able to do it. So if we're going to have a seed and a land and all this together, it's probably going to come through 
somebody like that. That's what he thinks. That's what we might all think. That's not God's plan, though. God said, you will have offspring like the sand of the seashore and the stars in the sky. It's amazing. Think of this. The seed of woman becomes the seed of Abraham, becomes the son of David, becomes the son of man, becomes the son of Mary, becomes the son of God, becomes the lamb of God, becomes the line out of the tribe of Judah, and becomes the alpha and the omega. That's the flow of Jesus through the whole Bible. That's who he is. That's who he is. The third, and, by, and so he makes, later on, he, made a, he came in Genesis 15 and said, this is a covenant. Goes back to this one. He came in 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 17 and made a covenant right there with David and said, David, you're going to have a seed and that seed's going to be the Messiah. And so that's another covenant called the Davidic covenant. And then the third thing is what we call the blessing. All the nations of the world will be blessed. And God came later. And made this commitment. It's found in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. And so there are three other covenants made that all go back to the Abrahamic covenant. And they're all unconditional. Now let me just say something. God makes this promise to David. I mean, excuse me. God makes this promise to Abraham. Guess what? As we see their lives, God's going to come to Isaac and make exactly the same promise. And then he's going to come to Jacob and make exactly the same promise. Because it's coming through. What people? What people? Jewish people. And, and you've got to remember, the Jewish people, they, they are very important in our lives. So I want you to look at this. The land is, will be the nations forever. They're arguing over now. You know, who does Gaza belong to? It doesn't belong to Hamas. It belongs to Israel. Who does the West Bank? Who does, the, what, who does that belong to? I mean, think about it. Uh, so this land is theirs forever. And people can argue all they want to, but one of these days, God's going to give the Israel their land. Okay? Second, the seed that's going to be the great nation, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, but ultimately it's Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul says. He says the promise was the seed, Jesus Christ. And then there will be the blessings to all the nations. The Messiah will bring the provision of salvation to the whole world. So when you think about the Jewish people, we go, wow, it's amazing what God has done. What God has done. And by the way, you say Jewish people. Uh, let me ask you a question. One time I was, I was on an airplane uh, flying back and forth. I went from Dallas to border every Dallas to Amarillo twice, twice a week. And uh, I got on the airplane. I sat by a Jewish lady. Her name was Miss Fepperman. And she saw me reading Hebrew. I was trying to learn Hebrew. I wasn't really reading it very well. And she said, do you know Hebrew? And I said, I know a little bit of Hebrew. And she said, I'm Jewish. And I went, wow. I said, I love Jewish people. And she said, most people hate us. I said, I know. I don't know. I said, it's because you're God's chosen people. You're God's people. And let me tell you, um, I had a friend that was Jewish, and he'd say, why do you love Jewish people? And I always say, well... My Savior's Jewish. That's why. What do we get? Through the Jewish people, through the Jewish people, we get the Word of God. Romans chapter 3, verse 2 says, The oracles of God, we, we, through God's people, the Jews, we get the Word of God. Do you realize that every writer 
And this book is Jewish. Now, some people say that maybe Luke might not have been Jewish. We don't know for sure. He might not have been. He could have been. But if Luke was not Jewish, he's the only non-Jewish author in the whole Bible. So this is, this is the, the, the Word of God, alive and powerful. And how did we get it? We got it through the Jewish people. And then guess what else we got through the Jewish people? The Savior of the world, the Messiah. And we should all be so excited when you think about Jesus Christ came through the Jewish people. It's just the most amazing thing of all. So we got it. Now, so Abraham was a man set apart by God. Here he is. God comes to him and says, I got a deal. I want you... I'm going to give you a land which you will have forever. I'm going to give you a seed which ultimately the Messiah is going to come. I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And there's going to, you're going to be a blessing to the whole world because the Messiah is going to come through you. And I will bless anybody that blesses you. And I'll curse anybody that curses you. And you're going to be okay from now on. And you're going to have a descendant. And of course, Abraham may have thought, wow, I mean, I believe that. Uh, because it actually says later on in the book of Romans that he was confident that whatever God promised he was able to do, but he just wasn't sure how is God going to take a man who's 75 and a wife who's 65, and they're already old, and we're going to find out that years go by and nothing happens. And as the years go by, you know what he probably thought? How is God going to do this? How is God going to do this? Well, Let's see what happens. Look at chapter 12. Uh, look at verse 4. So Abraham went away, went away as the Lord had spoken to him. And Lot went with him. So there's Abraham and Sarah and Lot. Now Abraham was how old? 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abraham took his wife Sarah and his nephew Lot and all their possessions which they had accumulated and the people which they had acquired in Haran. And they set out from, for the land of Canaan. That's what, so they came to the land of Canaan. So we said, well, they finally made it, right? And so they set out and Abraham is now 75 years old. That makes, that makes uh, Sarah how old? 65, okay. And so look what happens. Abraham, verse 6 Abraham passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oaks of Morah. And now the Canaanites were living in the land at that time. So there were people living there. And he gets there and look what God says. And the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your descendants I will give this land. Let me ask you something. God appears. I, I don't know. How? What did he look like? How did he do it? Did he show up outside the tent like he does later on? There's going to be a time God, Abraham looks up and there's God standing there with two angels and, and giving him from information. And so here God comes to him and says, to you, notice what he says carefully, to your descendants, I will give this land. What's Abraham's response? So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. What does that mean? What does that mean? By the way, why would God appear to him again? He left the earth of the Chaldees. He went up to Haran. God told him to leave and go to that land. God get, he gets to that land. And what happens when he gets to that land? God appears again. And God says, this is your land. You can see Abraham going, yeah, you, have you told these people <laughs> that live here? You know, have you, have you told these people? He said, this is your land. And what did he do? And by the way, the Lord appeared, why? To reaffirm the covenant. What's the covenant? God's going to do what? Three things. Give him a what? 
a land, a seed, and a blessing. By the way, that's the whole rest of the Bible, by the way, y'all. That's the whole rest of the Bible. So I'll give you this land, and what is the response by Abraham? He built an altar. What does that mean? He's worshiping God. Let me, let me, uh, let's, let, let's think about something real quickly. In the book of Genesis, in the very beginning, there's Adam and Eve. But what do we find Cain and Abel doing in their story? What are they doing? They're doing what? Livestock and farming. Well, yeah, what are they doing? What's the story about? What are they doing? They're bringing what? That's how they worshiped God. They brought a sacrifice. When Noah got off the ark, what did he do? The first thing he did? Offered a sacrifice. When Abraham gets to the land and God says, this is your land, what does he do? He builds an altar, offers sacrifices, and worship God. So when you think about when you think about an altar like that, there's a place of sacrifice and a place of worship. That's what that's what you you see. And so at places of sacrifice, places of worship. Uh, just think for a minute and just just stay right there for a second. Let's think about sacrifice. There's two aspects of sacrifice. Have you ever thought about it? God's sacrifice for us, and this is now our sacrifice for God. And you go, what? What's God's sacrifice for us? What? It, what? Jesus, he came and he died on the cross and died and rose again, paying for sin. He's the satisfactory payment, not for our sins only, but for the, the sins of the entire world. That's who he is. Uh, he died on the cross. Hebrews 10 said he offered one sacrifice for sin forever and he sat down at the right end of the throne of God. Why did there have to be a sacrifice for us? Because we've all sinned, come short of the glory of God. We need a Savior. Jesus came and died and paid for sin, did the whole thing and removed the sin debt. I brought this out Sunday. I just want to emphasize this because you've got to grasp this. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone and people don't go to hell because of sin. Why? All sin is paid for. Why do people go to hell? Because they don't believe. The, 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 the dividing line is he that believes is not condemned, but he that believes not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. People got to understand, Jesus has done it all. He paid for sin, rose again, conquered death. He's done it all, and he's offering to us a gift, and the gift is eternal life. That's his sacrifice for us. And then we think about our sacrifice for him. You know what it is? The Bible actually says there are sacrifices, but the most important one is our lives. This is as believers now. This is not for salvation because salvation is a gift. It costs us nothing. But our life as a believer costs us our lives. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. We offer our lives to God as a living sacrifice. So when you think of sacrifice, think of what Jesus has done for us, but what we should do for him. The second thing is worship. Um, what is worship? If you've ever had one of my classes before, you probably know that I, I don't. I, worship is not the emotion, and worship is not the singing. I mean, I've had people come up and say, "Oh, the worship was great today, and the Bible was really good." No, no, no. Worship is responding to God. That's what worship is. Worship is you respond to God. That's and and so and, and don't confuse it with emotions and feelings. It may have emotions and feelings, but let me just show you. Think about think about uh, uh, how, how can we can worship. Look, uh, 
sacrifice worship, let me put it. Worship is responding to God. Look at this. We, as we pray, as we sing, as we give, as we apply. On the Sunday mornings, you'll hear me say that. Think about it. As we, as we come together and lift up our voices in prayer, or as we sing, as we, as we give as an act of worship and trust, as we apply the word, as we study it and know it and live it out, all of that is responding to God. All of that is acts of worship. Think about that. It is amazing. So when Abraham or Abram came there, what did he do? He built an altar to the Lord. And then I want you to notice that the next verse, notice what it says. Are you there in verse 7? He says, so he built an altar to the Lord. Then he proceeded from there to a mountain to the east of Bethel and pitched a tent with Bethel with Ai on the east. And he built what? An altar to the Lord. By the way, Bethel, you know what Bethel means? House of God. He's calling where he is God's place. He's saying, God has brought me this far. Let me tell you, I don't know if you've ever had to pack up and go somewhere and you didn't know where you were going. I remember when I went to Dallas Seminary, I mean, I, I resigned from Mississippi State, got it, sold my house, so I had this house, and, and I drove to Dallas, and I had a friend that already lived in Dallas, and he helped tell me, okay, here's, here's an apartment. And I had already talked to the apartment people. So when I drove there, I, I really didn't know where I was going, and I finally found the apartment, and I said, now I'm in this apartment. Now what do I do? <laughs> it, it was strange. Think about Abraham when God saying to him, leave this land that you've always lived in, go to a land that I'm going to show you and give you, and uh, I'm going to make you great. And, all that. and you, he could say, I don't know where we're going. The old story, I mean, there used to be the story of Abraham says, pack up. God told us to leave. And Sarah says, where are we going? He said, I don't know. What's it going to be like? I don't know. What's the weather like? I have no idea. What's the land like? I have no idea. What are we going to do there? I have no idea. God just told us to go. And this is what it's like. And so what does he do when he gets there? He worships God. We should worship God all the time. He's taking us places day in and day out. We never know. Well, um, so far, wow. Let's get to the third part. Whoops, what happened? Oh, there we go. This is the failure. And... Um, when we say failure, has there been? Let's let, let me ask you a question. Let's 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 raise this for a second. Has Abraham done good? Yeah, is Abraham. What did he do? He's believed God, right? He left Ur the Chaldees at his home, and he ended up with a wife and a nephew and nobody else, and he goes to a land that's inhabited by all these different people, and he gets there. And he goes to a place, and he calls upon the name, builds an altar, and God says to him, this land is yours. And as I said a while ago, he never possessed it. You could almost say, well, that doesn't seem fair. But he didn't. Neither did Isaac. Neither did Jacob. So he's done great, right? He believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. He's built an altar. He's worshipped God. He's done everything. He brought his wife, nephew, to, you know, and he says, I trust God. Is that right? He's a great man. Uh-oh. Can great people fail? Do great people fail all the time? Uh, David was great, wasn't he? Songwriter, fighter. T defeated Goliath when he was like 14, maybe 12 to 14 years old, uh, a man after God's own heart. Did he fail? Yeah. Did Paul fail? Yeah. Did Peter fail? 
Yeah. Have you failed? Yeah. We all fail. We all fail. And so we can't say things like, how could he really do that? Listen, we're all capable. There are people who will say things like, a real Christian wouldn't do that. Let me tell you, a real Christian will do anything. Right? Are you capable of any sin? Listen, you may think you're not. And the moment you think you're not capable of a certain sin, you're putting yourself right there where you might do it. You have to admit that we're all fallen and come short of the glory of God. We've got the power of the Holy Spirit. We're a new creation in Christ. We've got to live for the glory of God. But we're capable of any failure. And look at this. Genesis 12. Look at verse 10. There was a famine in the land. So what? So Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a time because the famine was severe in the land. So let's, let's raise a question. Should he have left? Where did God tell him to go? To that land. And it, he said, this is your land. And look around. This is going to be your land. And he said, Bethel, I'm calling on. This is the house of God. And, and, and I'm, I've worshipped God here. Then a famine comes. And what does he do? Okay, we're packing up. Where are we going this time? You know, there's nothing in here that says God told him to go. There's nothing in here that says Abraham said, Lord, should I go to Egypt? Right? Uh, You know, does this famine mean he's out of the will of God? No, because, I mean, some people could say, well, if there's a famine, something's wrong. Not necessarily. Cut it all joy and you fall into various what? Trials, because the test in your faith works patience. It just may happen. And so, at any time, A.B. Meyer says this. He says, he acted on his own judgment. He looked at the difficulties without consultation of his heavenly protection. He goes down to Egypt. Now, I don't want to be that harsh on him, because he's pretty harsh on him. But should he may have stayed? When this is over, this part tonight, uh, it's not going to be a happy day. Okay? So, let's see what happens. He goes down to Egypt. And uh, uh, how old is he? He's, he's over 75, right? How old is she? She's over 65. We don't, we don't know how much time has passed. But let's see what happens. Genesis 12:10. there was a famine in the land. So watch what happens. It came about, verse 11, that when he was approaching Egypt, he said to his wife Sarah, See now, I know that you are a beautiful woman. Was she beautiful? She had to be exceptionally beautiful for a 60-something-year-old person. Because he said, you're beautiful, and I'm worried about something. What do you mean? Well, look, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. So he said, I'm kind of worried that when we go into Egypt, and you know what you could say then? Well, then don't go into Egypt, right? But he's going into Egypt, and he says, you know, you're so good looking. And I bet she was beautiful. And he says, when we get down there, they're going to look at you and they're going to say, she's beautiful. And what they may do is kill me to get to you. So I'm worried about it. So maybe, maybe let's do this. Let's do this. Please say that you're my sister so that it may go well for me because of you and that I may live on account of you. He said, when I get down there and they say, say that you're my sister, that means I'm kind of the protector of you. And they'll all say, well, that's like the big brother. That's the brother. He'll handle everything. I mean, she has to do things through him because that's the way it was in that time. And so when I get down there and everybody say, ooh, he's got a beautiful sister. Let's let's build him up and protect him and be nice to him because maybe then we can get to be with his sister. Who knows? He said, so let's do this. Why don't you tell him that you're my sister? Is it true that she's his sister? 
She's his half-sister. They had the same daddy but different mothers. Did you know that? And, and so he's saying, it's not really a lie, is it? Truth is, she was his half-sister, Genesis 20, verse 12. But he's lying. You know, can you tell something that's sort of true that's really sort of a lie too? Yeah. And that's what he's doing. He says, well, uh, you just tell him that you're my sister. Wow. I think that they should have stayed in the land and they shouldn't have gone to Egypt, but they didn't. And so once again, it says in verse 13, Please say that you're my sister, so it'll go well for me because of you, and I may live on account of you. And, you know, she had to do it. She just says, well, if that's what you think's best. I mean, you know, I'm following you wherever you go. That's my role. I, I'm the one that loves you. We're together. Um, wherever you go, I go. And so if you tell me to do that, I'm going to tell you uh, I'll, I'll do it. So look what happens, verse 14. Now, it came about that when Adam, uh, Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw the woman was very beautiful. She was. And so look what happened. Um, Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. Now, Pharaoh is like a god. You know that. In Egypt, you know, Pharaoh is, is the god. He's the main one, and his son's the next god. He controls everything. They've got all kind of gods there, from Ra, which is the sun god, to beetles, to cows, to whatever. They've they got gods all over the place. But he's the main guy. And he sees this beautiful woman. Somebody came to him and said, Pharaoh, this man shows up with a sister that is really, she's, she's beautiful. And he says, well, I should have her. I'm, I'm the king. I'm God. Who is this man? So what did he do? It says, therefore, it says, um, Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. You can see him coming out to him and say, the Pharaoh would like to meet with you. And they take her, and he goes, what about me? You know, and, and they go, and so what's going to happen there? And look what happened, verse 15. Pharaoh's officials saw her and said, verse 16, then he treated Abram well for her sake. And gave him sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Why is he doing that? Why is he giving stuff to Abraham? What do you think he's thinking? What, what do you think? This woman's going to be mine, so I'm going to give you a whole bunch of junk. You know, here, I'll take you. you know, I'm, pay, I'm paying for her. This is the dowry. I'm going to give you, like, oh, let's get some donkeys, sheep, female servants, don camels, uh, male donkeys. I'm going to give all these people to you, and I'll keep this woman. Because she's your sister, and this will make you rich. And your, your job has been just kind of take care of your sister, so I'm going to be there to do all that. Wow. You know, he should trust God's promises, not his own plans. His own plans was to go to Egypt and tell everybody that she's my sister. Do we realize the problem? What's the problem here if she gets married to the Pharaoh, so to speak? What's the promise to Abraham? That through he and Sarah are going to have what? A seed, which will have a seed, which will have a seed. Ultimately, who comes through them? The Messiah. Well, what happens if she ends up with an Egyptian? This is not good. Do we realize the problem? Is this going to jeopardize the promise? Do you know all the way through the Bible, it looks like the promise is going to be jeopardized all the way. Haman's going to kill all the Jews. The Egyptians are going to kill all the boy babies there. And you start looking all the way through. Every time Satan tries to figure out a way to stop the Messiah from coming. And he can't do it. 
even here, this is a plan. Human beings are doing it, but they may not realize that this is a plan. Satan is trying to figure out a way to stop the Savior from coming. Because the promise is from Abraham, which will go down to Isaac, to Jacob, and to Judah, and on down. And if she gets married to somebody else, what are you going to do? Wow. This could mess up everything. Now, think about this. I read this, uh, and it just made me think. It says, in, think about the guilt and shame. He gave away his wife for his protection and blessing. So Abraham was doing what? Real good. Now he's doing what? Real bad. <laughs> so over here, he's believing God. Over here, he's saying, well, they took my wife, but I did get rich. And, you know, I'm not getting killed, you know. So what am I going to do? Well, look at verse 17. But the Lord struck Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. Now, I, we don't know. It says great plagues. We don't know. It, 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 um, it literally means smiting disease. And what kind of disease was it? We, we don't really know what happened. All of a sudden, people started getting sick. All of a sudden, things began to happen. And, and uh, uh, you know, what's, Pharaoh knew something was wrong. Pharaoh said, something is wrong. What's going on? Uh, Hugh, uh, uh, Alan Ross was, my, was a Hebrew professor at Dallas Seminary. And he's amazing. He did a great stuff on the, the book of Genesis. And he put this up. He said, the divine preservation of the purity of Sarah was for the sake of the promise. God is going to intervene where Abraham has messed up. God is going to intervene and save their lives. And going to make sure that Sarah is not going to be taken away from Abram. So watch what happens. The Lord struck Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is it that you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? So that I might take her for myself as a wife. Now, let's just start out. This is Pharaoh, and he calls in Abraham. Now, Abraham, let's think about something. Who is one of the most important men in the Word of God? Abraham. He's the father of many nations. He's the father of the Messiah. He's the, he's the most, really, at this stage of the game, he's the most important person in the world. And who's getting on to him? Some pagan king of Egypt is looking at him and saying, Why did you do this, you, you idiot? What do you think you're doing? He says, Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now here, then, here is your wife. Take her and what? And go get out. This is God's representative. And what happens here? They say, get out. Do you think if Abram decided right then to tell him about the true God and how to have life, that Pharaoh would listen to him? I don't think so. He said, get out. Abraham was supposed to... Pharaoh commands Abraham to leave. It's an embarrassment. Yes, yeah. Say that again. I couldn't hear you. Well, I think he said, you lied to me, you tricked me, and we brought sickness on my whole group because of what you did. And so you take your wife and you get out of here. So he totally correlated the, play, the sickness with 
Well, yeah. Why, why did? Yeah, he knows what's going on. Listen to this. Read, let me read it again. He says, uh, "The Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah." The Pharaoh called Abraham and said, "What have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me?" He 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 sees all this stuff happening, and and he says something's going wrong here. And he probably asked her, and she probably tells him, "Well, the truth is, I'm his wife." And he goes, "What? Look what you've done." Listen, there there is some. Some morals in some people, even even Pharaoh. And he doesn't want to take somebody else's wife. I mean, you know, in that day and age, you, you might have 20 wives, but they weren't somebody else's wives. And so he, he realizes this would be wrong. Look, listen, this is not the last time this happens. He does it again. And guess what? Isaac does it because he watched his daddy do it. And you think, and that's one of, one of the things we can learn from this is, listen, be careful, because what we do, other people watch, and they may do the same thing. And, and so we've got to be careful. So he tells Abram to leave. It's an embarrassment. He has gone down to Egypt, and he had been doing so good. He'd been obeying God. He'd been worshiping God. And then when the famine came, he left. He went down there. He lied. He caused problems. He put Sarah in jeopardy. And they'll tell him what could happen. And finally, Pharaoh says, I just found out something about you. Get out of here. And I'm going to tell you, he's not going to be able at this stage to make any impact for God, is he? Yes. Yeah, I th- I've heard that same thing that if you can't, do not do not fear or don't be afraid. There's maybe 365 or something, you know, one for every day. And so the bottom line is, I think Abraham was afraid. I think Abraham was afraid, was afraid they would kill him when they saw a beautiful wife to get him and his property and to get her. He thought they were godless people. They weren't godless. They had all kind of gods, <laughs> just the wrong kind of god. And, and yet he came down there. And listen, he's going to do the same thing later on. And the, the guy's going to say the same thing to him. He said, why did you do this? And he said, well, I just thought y'all didn't believe about God or anything, and so I was afraid you'd kill me. And so what's bad is Pharaoh has better values at this time than Abram does. So Abram leaves. He's embarrassed. He's failed to trust God. It's testimony. And, you know, one of the things we can, we can learn is that sometimes we blow it, and sometimes we blow our testimony. And so... Luther, uh, Martin Luther wrote this, I I liked it, what it it said. Luther was so, it was so humbling for the man of God to be rebuked by the heathen king. And then he writes, the best of men are at best men. We all fail. All of us in this room fail. You put us in the wrong place at the wrong time, we might do the wrong thing. We would all like to say, I think I'd be okay, but we never know. You never know. And we all think, what if, what if somebody came in and put a gun up and said, deny Christ or be killed? We all wish we would say, you just go ahead and shoot me. But, but you don't know until the time comes. You just don't know. And if you said to Abram, what are you doing? He said, well, it was a famine. I, I didn't know what to do. Uh, did you talk to God about it? No, I didn't. So and you went down there, and then you lied, and then you got embarrassed, and you, she's got in trouble, and it could have been the end of everything. And at least Pharaoh said, get out. He says, get out. 
How do we respond when we fail? Yeah. In the circumstances of life, how do we respond? How do we come up with our plans? How do we deal with our problems? How do we deal with it when we fail? Look at Genesis chapter 13. Look what happens. So Abram went up there from Egypt back to the Negev, that means the south, and his wife and all that belonged to him and Lot was with him. Who's seen the failure? Sarah and Lot and everybody else. By the way, he's not by himself. If you think there's like three people, Abram has all kind of people working for him. He he probably has slaves. He has all kind of people. There's going to be a war later on. Abraham has 318 trained men in his household. So don't picture three people hanging around. You picture a lot of people. Who saw Abraham fail? Bunch of people. What's he going to do? Now, Abraham was very rich in livestock, silver, and gold. And he went on his journey from the Negev. Guess where he goes to? As far as Bethel. What does Bethel mean? House of God. To the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the what? The altar, which he had made previously there. And there, Abram did what? Called on the name of of the Lord. To call upon the name of the Lord is to worship Him, to praise Him, or to ask for His help. He may have been doing every bit of that. I just want to remind you of something. When you hear the verse that says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, every time to call upon the name of the Lord or call on the Lord is used in the Bible. It's like 58 times. Every time is asking for some kind of physical deliverance. To call upon the name of the Lord is not, that's not the same as believing. Just understand that. When it says, who shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, it means they'll be delivered from an enemy. And he's calling upon the Lord. He's going to be delivered from himself and the enemies and, and all of those things. And let me just show you this. He goes back to Bethel. He made an altar called upon the name of the Lord. Let me just show you. Just so you can grasp this. They started with Ur. They went up to Iran. They came down in, in uh, here, all of these places, Hebron, Bethel. Then the famine came, and we don't know whether they went over this way or this way. We just don't know. The, the, this map has it drawn this way. And then he basically ran them out, and they come back to where? They come back to right there, to Bethel. They're back to where they were. And, you know, when you sin, when you mess up, what do you do? Confess it and get back to where you were. Get back in fellowship. And that's the key. He's a God of second chances. What does it say? Abraham was very rich. He was rich. And he called upon the the name of the Lord. Sometimes we need to start over. Have you ever wished you could start over? That things didn't go right and you said, I wish I had to start over. And you could say to Abraham, Abraham, what would you change? I wouldn't go to Egypt. I shouldn't have gone to Egypt. I went down there and I blew it. So... So much there. Sometimes we need to start over. So the altar and the worship is there. Um, But let me bring it back this way for a second. When you look at Abraham, and I'll call him Abraham sometimes, sometimes Abraham, his name changed. He's an incredible person. God picked him out. Now, this was not for salvation. God picked him for service. It just so happens that Abraham did what? He believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. And God said to him, 
I'm going to give you a land, a seed, and a blessing. I'm going to give you a land. You're going to have so many people come from you that you'll scatter and you'll take the whole land. You'll have a seed, a nation, and a Messiah, a Savior will come through you. And it'll be the blessing of the whole world that this Messiah and Savior through you, Abraham, will be the Savior of the world. And I will bless anybody that blesses you. And I will curse anybody that cursed you. I guarantee you, I think old Pharaoh probably got blessed. Because he did the right thing. He said, I'm not touching another man's wife. Amazing. Well, let's get some applications. And then we'll go look at the quiz. And then we'll open it up. If we've got time, we, have to, we go to 8 o'clock. So we'll have time for questions if you want to. Here's that. First, let's understand that God always keeps his promises. He can't lie. What's his, what's his promise to you? One of his promises. I give you what? Eternal life and you shall never perish. Has he said that I will never leave you or forsake you? What should you fear? Has he said that, uh, uh, that he will supply all of your needs? Um, I mean, when we start thinking of promises, I always think of the promise of eternal life, I promise of a new body, a promise of his place in heaven. He said, I've gone to prepare a place for you when I get it ready. I'm going to come back and what? Get you. What's the place? I think it's the new Jerusalem. Uh, we're going we're gonna to start seeing it Sunday. It's going to take us about four weeks to finish through the whole thing, but four or five more lessons from the book of Revelation, and you're going to see the eternal state. You know, I, I talk to people and they say things like, I don't know about heaven because I don't, don't want to just sit around. I said, what makes you think you're sitting around? Have you ever read Revelation 21 and 22? You're not sitting around. Uh, and, and if you've seen what the world looks like, it's so amazing. So God keeps his promises. He can't lie. And when he makes a promise, and I think the greatest promise to us is I give you eternal life and you shall never perish. Understand the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant has three parts. What are the three parts? Land, seed, Blessing. What's the land? It's Israel. Okay. What's the seed? Uh, the, the nation of Israel and the Messiah. And what's the blessing? Salvation to the world through the Messiah. That's who he is. Land, seed, blessing. Let's worship our God and Savior. You know how we think about sacrifice and praise? Sacrifice and praise. That's what... That's what he did. He, he got an altar. He called upon God. He offered sacrifices. Um, you know, aren't, aren't you glad that we don't offer animal sacrifices? I mean, you realize from Adam and Eve to Enoch to Noah to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Noah, uh, Moses, all the way up through Jesus Christ, Man has always offered sacrifices, animal sacrifices, to cover sin until Jesus died on the cross and did what? Paid for all sin. He's the final sacrifice for sin forever. Now, that's a sacrifice for sin. In the church age, we don't offer the sacrifice of animals. We offer the sacrifice of ourselves. And there are, there are others as well. There's three other sacrifices we offer. And then, guess what? When you get to the kingdom, guess what they're going to do? They're going to be sacrifices. Going to be Read Ezekiel chapter uh, 40 through 48. It describes the temple that is built in the kingdom and the sacrifices that are offered. And we could say, I wonder why are we doing that? Probably is a memorial like the Lord's Supper is a memorial. There won't be any sacrifices or anything in the eternal state. There will be no temple. 
God is the temple himself. So it's wonderful. So sacrifice and praise. Here's this one. Let's trust God in the circumstances of life. Um, sometimes we don't know what to do. Abraham probably, uh, you know, because he's in a kind of a special time that God actually appeared to him. Uh, we have the, the Holy Spirit. We can pray. We can lift up things. Uh, what do we do when we sin? We confess it and we start over and remember the promises. That's the key.